Listener Production. The creators of this podcast would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which it is recorded. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are the first storytellers of this land. We pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, as well as any Indigenous people who may be listening today. Hello and welcome to Tofu Up With Friends. I'm Charlie Clawson and joining me is uh, Johnny McKay, Lord Fascinator, a.k.a. Fascinator. <laughs> welcome back to the show. <laughs> a.k.a. Johnny McKay. Is it McKay? Yeah. Oh, I apologise. <laughs> that's all right. How long have I known you for? Uh, well, that's all right. Is McKay, K-A-Y, always pronounced McKay? No, it's different. Oh. I'm not sure. There's an AFL footballer. There's two actually, twin brothers, Ben and Harry Mackay, and they're often it's interchangeable. McKay, Mackay, they don't correct anyone, but you think you're better than me. I normally wouldn't, you know. I I do like correcting um, people when I'm when I'm entering the uh, the plane, a domestic right, a domestic airline in right. Australia who all fly to the town of Mackay, right, spelt like my name, and then they say it incorrectly. That's the only time I usually. Oh, of course, Mackay. Yeah, of course that that makes a hundred percent sense. <laughs> I mean, people do mispronounce my name as well. They say Clausen. Well, it's weird because Clausen's actually technically the correct pronunciation because it's a Danish name and yeah. if you're in Denmark, I would be Clausen. 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 But um, I don't correct people. Yeah, because <laughs> you're not a prick. <laughs> <laughs> this is a, an exceptional uh, tough up with friends because you're actually in the studio with me. This studio that I purpose-built with my own two hands so that Will and I could record uh, TOEFOPs. Do you know how many TOEFOPs were recorded in here since I built this? None. Zero. <laughs> what was on the wall before? I mean, we're talking you, about you things re- that people can't see, which is always exciting when you're listening to a podcast. Well, they can always go to my Instagram page, scroll back about two years, and you'll see the uh, the original wallpaper in this room. When I say it's a studio, it's like a it's like a downstairs basement that I've converted into a uh, into a, a podcasting studio slash workspace. But um, it was a teenager's bedroom when we bought this house. And uh, she had wallpaper that was a collage of denim. That's right. I quite liked it. Yeah, of course you would. <laughs> <laughs> like 80s faded blue denim with like it was um, lemon yellow, canary yellow trims around the doors. You can sort of just see just inside there. Yeah, it's um... – yeah, it's really it's really gone downhill stylistically since then. It really has. I mean, I, I had this idea that like I bought this massive bench. I thought, well, you know what, we'll, we'll, we'll run Tofop from here, and you know, anytime there's like some big name musician or someone coming through, we can. <laughs> Don't bring point them at in. me when you say that. You're <laughs> condescending, Dick. No, I'm not condescending. <laughs> I mean it. This is my plan. Is that like there's so many people pass through Byron Bay? I was like, oh, we'll bring him in. It'll be like the Joe Rogan studio, except with less fucking conspiracy theories. Yeah. Well, we could do more conspiracy theories. All right, what do you got for me? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I don't know conspiracy theories, no. Uh, I was, uh, but I, I will offer my opinions on any you've got. What about old conspiracy theories? Like we've probably talked about the Paul McCartney one, right, before. You, you know that oh, one. Oh, that he's been, yes. That he died. Yeah, um, yeah I'm not sure if I And was sure replaced by a bass player called William Camp. You, do you know that? Oh, I this don't is know one of my all-time favourites. Okay, let's do it. Okay. And, and you've and, just seen Paul McCartney live, so. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm, still, I'm still not sure that I, I saw the real deal. So. Uh, this story was told to me by Gemma and I when we were living in Sydney. Uh, we used to have this local pub. It was just like a, your average suburban pub. But one day we were walking past and we could hear this really amazing like surf rock, really cool kind of like psychedelic surf rock coming out. And we went in and it was these four 
they just look like middle-aged dads. They're just wearing like tracksuit pants and T-shirts and stuff. Like they look like Tenacious D, mm -hmm. but playing really good music. But the bass player was the exception because he looked like he was from the Ramones. He had like tight jeans on and, you know, the, the black kind of shaggy fringe and a leather jacket and stuff. Anyway, when they were taking their break, I just started chatting to him. And I was like, hey, you guys are really good. And, you know, um, uh, where did you start playing? And so we were just chatting and he started going on about um, – his musical influences and he said, yeah, I love the Beatles, but I kind of, you know, I can't support what happened. And I'm like, what happened? And he's like, well, well, Paul died and they replaced him with an impersonator. And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, yeah. So Paul died in a car accident and MI6 was so worried that there would be like this kind of, you know, freak out from teenage girls all over the world that they approached the surviving Beatles and said, look, we don't want to cause a panic. So we've come up with a plan. There's this guy called William Campbell. He won a Paul McCartney lookalike contest a few months ago. We'd like you to bring him in and train him to be the new Paul. Just let's have a think about the timeline here. <laughs> okay. So MI6, had they prepared for the eventuality of a Beatle dying and oh. therefore had prepared four different um, replacement Beatles just in case, they weren't sure which one was going to die, all of a sudden, oh my god, it's happening! Strike Force Macca, yeah, or Strike Force Replacement Beetle goes into effect, and they've got all right. Well, let's call up this guy and let's call the other Beatles in and have the meeting because if we if we take too long, it's going to get out that he actually died. Mm. So in the time between, it would have been in the in the papers or whatever, and him dying, they've already done the switch. They've had the meeting, and luckily they had this plan in place ready to go. Yeah, that's the that's okay. the uh, that's the idea. I don't think it was actually as pre-planned as that. I don't think MI6 were planning for Beetle to die. Well, that, well I'm just I'm wondering what the time because how could they have done that so quickly? Um, well, because I think it was. Oh, yeah, it's a good point. I mean, MI6 if they are as well organized and well drilled, I like because you're what you're doing here is adding another layer of the conspiracy to the conspiracy, which is that MI6 are anticipating this or maybe MI6 were responsible. Maybe they didn't like Paul's counterculture points of view on acid and love and stop the wars and all that kind of shit. Well, my only point is like someone gets hit by a car, someone famous gets hit by a car. If they're not waiting for it and watching it, MI6 aren't going to be the first to know. Well... Maybe, yeah, no, they probably would Unless be. Unless it was MI6 because that the, hit him. Well, no, because if you think about it, the press monitor the police scanners, yeah. right? So law enforcement would be connected. So there is a chance that MI6, when it's someone that prominent, like a Beatle dies, that MI6 gets tipped off and they were like, we have war-gamed this scenario. Yeah, that's we were what I'm worried, saying. We were worried this might happen. That's what I'm saying. They would have had to have war-gamed it. We don't want a rash of... If they if they hadn't war-gamed it, I just think it would have gotten out. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay, so this is well, this is what this guy's theory was, is that so um, the Beatles agreed and so they trained up William Campbell, taught him to play the left-handed bass. Hang on, hang on, hang on. He wasn't left-handed. Well, no, I guess, I mean, I, I don't think so. Do you want me to look it up? Sure. Okay, Let, let's. You know what? I, I'm going off what this guy told me, but there may be more to this theory than we than we know. I mean, look, I, I'm, I'm more, I'm more down to to be into building seven conspiracy theories than this one. Okay, all right, <laughs> all right. Listen, let me just look it up. I should have brought ChatGPT along again this time. Could have asked him or her or it, it, whatever it is. It's a thing. You don't don't start personalizing. You can't. GPT. You can't. Gen, you can't assign gender to ChatGPT. Well, uh, maybe you can. I guess you could. Well, I'm not sure it has genitals. Non-binary. It's. Oh, it is, but it is, oh, bi it is binary. <laughs> it's a non-binary. There's not many things more binary. 
All right, here we go. <laughs> Paul McCartney conspiracy, right? That's what I've got to type in. Yeah. A lot of people listening to you using the internet. Uh, they're used to it, don't worry. <laughs> this is part of the show. If we didn't have Wikipedia, we wouldn't have a show. What importantly, can, conspiracy? Conspiracy, yeah. All right. Okay, music. This is from uh, a website called Beatles Story. Um, dot com. So I assume they're the greatest authority. The music's biggest conspiracy, Paul is dead. As avid Beatles fans, we have heard every fact, story, and theory surrounding, surrounding the Fab Four, from in-depth analysis and lyrics they wrote to transcripts of private conversations. Who gives a shit? Uh, the most documented band of all time doesn't just come with its fun factoids, but there's also wild theories and deductions too. Um, okay, so the theory. The theory goes that on the 9th of November, 1966, Paul McCartney was tragically killed in a car crash on his way home from working on the Sgt. Pepper's album in studio. The Beatles, wanting to save their fans from the heartache of losing Paul and dealing with the loss of their bandmate, decided to conceal the truth. Okay, so this doesn't even bring my six. If you think of it from the point of view of the band members and the way that's written, it's very cold. It's like our mate, our best mate just died. (laughs) However, the band, I mean, yeah. I mean, all right, but just say, like, let's put some... So Sergeant Peppers was their response to pet sounds, right? So the Beatles are finishing... They're, they're feeling a bit of pressure. Like, the Beach Boys have just released this album that they're like, fuck, like, everyone's talking about the Beach Boys. We've got to one-up them. Yeah. And then Paul dies. They're like, this is going to overshadow perhaps our like the, our greatest masterpiece. <laughs> Do you think? Like, you're a creative. So, you know, just say a new Fascinator album's about to come out. Everyone who's heard it is like... This is amazing, but you get a guest vocalist on some famous guest vocalist, and then she dies tragically, and you're like, oh, I don't want her. Well, I'm not sure. I can't see through the lens of 1966. The lens of right now, I'd be like, wow, this is going to make this so much bigger. If I wanted to be cold about it, yeah, I wouldn't have really that much interested in interest in replacing them with a copy. All right. Well, it says, it says here that uh, so they were they were wanting to save their fans the heartache of losing Paul and dealing with loss of the bandmate. They decided to conceal the truth, perhaps not by choice. I guess that's where the MI6 element comes in. And they replaced Paul with the winner of a Paul McCartney lookalike contest. His name was William Campbell. So he didn't even necessarily have any musical skills. No, he just won a lookalike contest. Oh so they say his name was William Campbell, a.k.a. Billy Shears. I've been playing music for decades. I find playing bass and singing quite difficult still. Mm. Doing Paul McCartney does pretty high level of skill back then. Like could they lo- not lot of you, instruments. in the sixties? Could you use backing tracks? Could he be miming? I guess they 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 weren't playing live. They pulled out of being live. I mean, you're coming around to this. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's stupid. <laughs> in the years, oh yeah, there's no doubt it's stupid. In the years following the tragic incident, the remaining Beatles were racked with guilt and began leaving clues and messages in their music and material to communicate the truth to the fans. Okay, so I love that. I love the fact that rather than just sort of you know coming clean, the biggest band in the world could call a press conference and have everyone there. They have to cryptically leave clues within like album artwork and stuff. Yeah. Um, so this is what they say, the truth. In reality, <laughs> there is no evidence to support this story. Although Paul was involved in two car accidents around this time, multiple witnesses and Paul himself confirmed shortly afterwards that he was perfectly well. Additionally, there is no evidence that a look-like contest ever took place and no trace of William Campbell ever existing. They're existing. Right. 
That's actually the like the weirdest part of it. That the the guy didn't exist. What do you, well, what do you mean? Well, I feel like that, oh, that, that someone would just that's, like that's, come up with that a gives credence to it more than anything to be like, hang on, what do you mean it didn't exist? Yeah, right. So they think erased that's his existence. More suspicious. Yeah, that's the most suspicious part of it. Apart from the few odd whispers here and there, the rumor never really gained any traction for the next two years until the 17th of September 1969 when a student called Tim Harper published an article titled Is Beatle Paul McCartney Dead? in Drake University student newspaper in Iowa, the USA. The article is understood to be the first published work on the Paul is Dead theory and the catalyst for transforming conspiracy from an irrelevant myth to an international phenomenon. This is a quote from Tim Harper's article. A lot of us, because of Vietnam and the so-called establishment were ready and willing to be able to believe just about any sort of conspiracy. That is an evergreen statement that is just as relevant now. Like if you replace Vietnam with COVID, yep. that's what people are thinking now. That's what I reckon like led to, you know, that we were talking um, a couple of days ago about the, how the referendum got defeated mm-hmm. and the way that they sort of, the no vote harnessed that kind of conspiracy uh, uh, community and I think it's the same thing. It's distrust of yeah. the government, distrust of media. There's, I mean, there's those graphs or, or diagrams that show far left and far right meeting back around together um, in in that world. It's been it's been weird to watch. I grew up with a lot of hippie friends that were always very left leaning, and to watch them through COVID have their kind of reality co opted by these kind of rabbit hole streams of information and. Now there's certain issues where I'll, I'll see them post and I can almost predict they're going to post something that I really disagree with just because they're, they're down this one track of, um, of information or misinformation or what is reality anyway, Charlie? I don't know. I don't know. Well, it's also <laughs> too like the, the markers of what is ostensibly left and right seem to have shifted anyway. Like the kind of hallmarks of what you would consider, you know, someone who's left-leaning, sympathetic, open-minded – has shifted because people get quite fanatic about their beliefs on either side. Yeah. So I don't think it is. Yeah. Or could, there's just more grey area, I guess, in the middle is what it is. There could, there's definitely a level of social fascism on what I would call the left as well. Purity test. Yeah. it's it, Yeah, I guess it's, it's just not it's not able to be spoken about in such binary terms anymore. Um, but we don't have a better language for it for some reason. Yeah. And it's also too like, have you noticed that people who are like, I'm a centrist, you know, I just a centrist. They tend to be more right. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, that's a fucking that's a cop out. That yeah. means I want to pay less taxes and be selfish, but I also want to hang out with you guys. Yeah, <laughs> I want to be cool. <laughs> Following the release of the article, a caller to the Detroit radio station informed DJ Russ Gibb of the rumor live on air. Intrigued, Gibb and other callers spent the remainder of the show discussing the rumor and its clues. Several other radio stations in the New York area began to pick up on the rumor for weeks following, including. Uh, the WABC, whose audience during the discussion in the early hours of the 21st of October 1969 was spread across 38 states. Before long, the rumour became known all over the world and popular music's biggest biggest conspiracy theory became more famous than ever. And this is from Paul himself, or maybe William Campbell, who knows. <laughs> Someone from the office rang me up and said, look, Paul, you're dead. And I said, oh, I don't agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can you do that in his, in his accent? Um Someone from the office ring me up and said, look, Paul, you're dead. And I said, oh, I don't agree with that. <laughs> I mean, uh, Tony Martin, the comedian, used to have a joke that, like, if you want to impersonate the Beatles, you put Paul up here, John's down here, 
Paul's up here. John's down there. It's kind of like, hey, Ernie, hey, Bert. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know how you do George. What did George sound like? Uh-huh. George was more like. Oh, uh, yeah. Was he? No, wow, you were, in, the, in the middle? You should do acting. And <laughs> I don't know about Ringo. <laughs> Thomas the Tinker taught Ringo. I can't do Ringo at all. I. I, yeah, I was surprised that you um dissing Ringo's drumming. Uh, I was just being you know? fun. I, that, I actually, look, trust me, I've watched <laughs> enough Drumio videos now to know that everyone respects Ringo and that he had a very unique style and that what do they always talk about is it Ticket to Ride where he does that. It's a Also, anyone with the salt knows it's the notes you don't play. Yeah, well, that's what they say <laughs> in Ticket to Ride. Like that could be a, just a traditional rock beat or something yeah. and he does something different with it. And it's also because he's left-handed, right? Doesn't he have a weird way of I working? I didn't, rem- didn't realise he was left-handed. Two, two left-handers in the one band? Yeah, and so he's he works his way because I've seen interviews with him where he talks about the way he works around the kit is awkward, so he... He doesn't do feels like other drummers or something like that, or he finds it harder to do feels like other drummers. Oh, but I mean, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just, don't, I don't have to defend Ringo. I like Ringo. <laughs> <laughs> In the 50 years following the conspiracy, first going to national fame, Beatles fans all over the world have submitted their own ideas supporting the evidence. Um, John Lennon was particularly vocal about his annoyance of people who read too much into the lyrical meaning of Beatles songs. And in response, he wrote Glass Onion in 68 to purposely confuse the culprits. Ironically, Paul is dead conspiracy theorists look at the lyrics to be an admittance of Paul's death, particularly the lyrics, well, here's another clue for you all, the walrus was Paul. Fans have suggested this not only is a reference to the song I'm the Walrus written by John for the Magical Mystery Tour, but more specifically the album cover. The artwork portrays the band in costumes dressed as animals, three of which are stood shoulder to shoulder dressed in white fur, while one member, the walrus, appears separate from the others dressed all in black. A colour often associated with mourning. Ugh. <laughs> yeah, so he's mourning himself. Yeah. As a walrus. Well, no, that would be his double. Because the, remember, the Beatles uh, were giving clues. Okay. Because I, th- I think there's So who's a- the Eggman? Well, that's John. Okay. Or that could be a symbol of, like, if we were going to put conspiracy brain on it, I'm the Eggman. So what is that? An egg symbolises birth, life, regeneration, I am the egg man. So it's a starting again. That's what John is saying. Paul's I like, dead. I feel like I'm getting a tarot reading. <laughs> yeah, it's about okay, the same yep. level of accuracy, right? <laughs> uh, it may seem an odd coincidence, uh, but fans have often debunked the so-called evidence as not only did John write and say and sing I'm the Warus himself, but can be seen wearing the very same Warus costume in the Magical Mystery Tour film. Another popular point of discussion surrounding the conspiracy is that of Abbey Road. You probably know this this one, right? No. Okay. So the Abbey Road album cover where Paul is pictured walking barefoot and is oh, yeah. out of step with the other Beatles and in some cultures the dead are buried without their shoes. Oh, my God. <laughs> some fans have understood the album cover to be a morbid symbolism of a funeral procession with John's white suit embodying the colour of the morning in some Eastern religions. Now, that is perfect like tarot reading because you've got – Oh, he's dressed in black. That's the colour of mourning. He's dressed in white. That is also a colour of mourning in some cultures. You can't really go wrong, right? Is it orange as well? Like it's just anyway. Yeah, you're, you're never going to get it wrong. You can you can make anything of anything. What really. I don't understand about the Abbey Road thing is that William Campbell dressed as Paul. What? Yeah, yeah, because that was after that. Because that's after Sergeant Pepper's. So if you are, let's say it's true, right, and this is the, the lookalike, wouldn't you – and it's just fine. Just say the other three Beatles want to give cryptic clues. But wouldn't the guy playing Paul be like, this is 
bad news for me. Like, let's not give any clues. Yeah. Because if I get exposed, yeah. why are you dressing me in the black suit barefoot so people pick it up? But then if I do give the clue, why would I try and give the clue if I was trying to hide something? Yeah, exactly. So this is... Mm. Okay. Do you want to know some uh, more bullshit? Okay. Oh, do I? Yeah. So John's <laughs> colour suit uh, represents the morning of some Eastern religions. George's denim... <laughs> Symbolizes the grave digger. What? <laughs> and Ringo's black suit being the traditional funeral wear. Although an interesting theory, the reality is a lot more plausible. Paul can be seen in other photographs taken during the shoot wearing sandals, and according to witnesses, he kicked them off because they're uncomfortable. Additionally, the outfit choices were completely common of how they dressed at the time. Uh, John Lennon said, They said I was. Uh, the, hang on. Paul, Paul's up here. John's down here. They said I was wearing a white religious suit. I mean, did Humphrey Bogart wear? Oh, I can't, I've forgotten how to Liverpoolian accent. Did Humphrey Bogart wear a white religious suit? All I've got is a nice Humphrey Bogart suit, said John in 1969. Several other clues discovered by fans involve secret messages that could be heard in various Beatles songs. One popular example is a suggestion that John Lennon can be heard saying, I buried Paul. Do you know what song that's from? Mm, no. If I said to you, cranberry sauce, do you know what that's right? No, what song is that? Strawberry Fields. Oh, right. <laughs> At the end of Strawberry Fields, just as it's fading out, you, there's a distorted like voice. It must be John saying, cranberry sauce. I, I think Strawberry Fields is like a, which they did quite a bit, it's two different takes spliced together and then the pitch slightly changes because of that, like because of the speed of the tape. I feel like I've, I've listened to something where it showed that before. What does that mean? So, you know, the way they used to record everything, everything was recorded to tape. Mm. And the Beatles, you'd, at that era, at the start, when they first started, you'd only have four tracks. So you'd have to kind of keep condensing things to different tracks. So you'd record the drums on one side of the tape and you'd record the vocals and the bass on the other and you'd pan everything and then you'd bounce it all down to another bit of tape and then you'd add overdubs and you'd bounce that down to a bit of tape. And sometimes you end up with half of one take, which was your How favorite. are you maintaining, is it fidelity, is that the word? Like how are you maintaining the quality of the recording if you, when you say bounce down, are mm. you re-recording onto a new piece of tape? You are, yeah, you're combining tracks. So you'll mix like the, I don't know, for example. But the, how do you do this in an analog era? Like is it literally just... Playing it, it and recording it again. It's playing the tape to playing the tracks on the tape into another tape, right? And then combining them into one channel or two channels into a stereo channel, usually or whatever. Okay. Um, and are you getting degradation from that recording? I guess you would get a little bit of degradation, but I mean, a lot of people chase that feeling that that gives now. Right. I, I've I've got a guy I record with all the time who's just um, only records the tape because of the. The way that sounds and feels. Um, but, yeah, so you'd end up with, like, one take of Strawberry Fields where we like the first half and another take where we like the second half and then the engineer would splice them together to make um, make the whole song. And I think Strawberry Fields is one of those where that, that, if you listen carefully, is kind of easy to hear. And didn't they pioneer, is it like looping or something, like Tomorrow Never Knows... They used looping, yeah. I'm, I, right. I'm sure they weren't the first, but they were probably the first to make popular, make it famous. They might have been, yeah. And so, in, in again, in analog, they literally there was a bunch of stuff that the Beatles did invent, and I know actually, PA's got better because of the that through that era because they stopped being able to play because the PA's couldn't ha compete with the crowds. Oh, so right, to, yeah. So like, so yeah, amplifiers and things like that got 
a lot better in that era to be able to handle screaming crowds. And do you think it's the fact that they didn't have to worry about touring like that enabled them to get so experimental? And because, like, you look at was it nine years they were together and the progression of their sound and like how the how sophisticated they got with their songwriting over that period. You know, you look at like Abbey Road compared to, you know. It's definitely trap bands get into where they like try and only make things that they can perform live like um, with, you know, a level of kind of instrumental fidelity. But then you've got the opposite now where a lot of big acts have a bunch of, you know, track backing tracks going so they can sound exactly like the the album. Yeah. In in my mind, it should be a different experience. To, the listening to the record and the seeing the band live should be two different things. So anyway. you don't try and create the studio sound. I've made live. the mistake of doing that. Right. On the third Children Glide record, we tried to tour with like a, a track going to add all the other extra little bits we'd put in in the studio and just kind of lost the vibe. Right. And so is that coming off like a, a backing track or something like that? Yeah, at that point it was, yeah. Right, yeah. So that would be weird because you, you you're trying to play to the timing of a pre-recorded. Yeah. depending on the style of music. Sometimes it works, sometimes. Like with, with that band, it was like there's a lot of push and pull because it's a, kind of got a punk thing going on. So once you're kind of, once you're kind of like glued to this track and you can't steer yeah. away from it, you can't um, kind of, you know, free from it, then it feels like a little rhythmically sterile or something. In the end, but yeah, maybe I mean maybe that did help the Beatles at the time. I don't know. And what about like if you're playing in a big stadium or whatever? Like, is it helpful to have sort of as I am often am, but playing in <laughs> the big the big stadium. Yeah. Welcome to the big stadium. Well, like when I saw McCartney a few weeks ago, I'm often playing venues that, that kind of size. I was wondering when he was supporting me. The other <laughs> I was wondering if he had like a backing track because I was like, oh, it doesn't seem. I doubt he would. Really? Maybe. I mean, it depends. If, you, well, if you're hearing strings on things and there's no strings players. It might yes. have just been the dis, um, the delay because I was like, I don't know. It's a feel, I felt like I was watching him playing and I was like, this, it, sound, it, it didn't seem to match up what I was seeing to what I was hearing. But then I assume it might have been just the delay because I was way in the nosebleeds to start the show. And then as I got closer, it seemed to be more synced. I'd have to have a look at the band. Right. And then here, I don't know. Why do you doubt that he he would? I mean, oh, who knows? Who knows with him? I mean, he'd, I don't, I, he's eighty-one. You would forgive but him. But what would he? What would he have? Like, you mean like an extra layer of his vocal? Or well, I don't know. How does it normally work? Do they when bands use tracks? Do they have like? Will they have the guitar part playing underneath and then they play over the top of it? Or it's usually that if they've put more parts into the track in the studio, that's practical. Then it's practical to have. Oh, okay, live. right. I understand. So, so, they're, so they're not, but they're not playing the same guitar part live that is on the backing track. They're not like miming or, hey, or playing. Hey, El- Eleanor Rigby is all just, it's, I think it's only strings and vocals, right? Yeah. String quartet and vocals. Was there a string quartet on stage? No, but there was no Eleanor Rigby either. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so there's there's a lot of Beatles songs that have, no, have but that. You're, so. But you're right, though. Now that I think about it, all the songs he played, either McCartney or Beatles songs, he didn't attempt anything that he didn't have. You know what I fucking hate? What? His Christmas song. I like most of his material. What's, a, what's his, his Christmas oh, song? I now I'm gonna have to sing it. It's gonna is be it a Beatles one? No, no, it's a Paul McCartney solo Christmas it. song. And I think it's because I it used to be on every. I worked in a supermarket as a kid. It was my <laughs> first job, and it used to get played every day. It goes, "Didn't we have a wonderful Christmas?" Is time? that Paul McCartney? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's Fuck, irritating as shit. <laughs> oh my god. 
That can go. That's like the it's the Billy Joel of Paul McCartney songs. Yeah, he's a funny one, Paul, because like he's just so good at like that crowd pleasing, you know, commercial song. He's just got such a great ear for. Like I think I was saying to you the other day. I feel like we talked about the Beatles a lot the last time we oh, did, did we? the podcast, yeah. Uh, I think last time I spoke to you because I just watched Get Back, so it's just the timing. <laughs> it's yeah. the coincidence. But he's, um, yeah, Obla D, Obla Da was like got such a big reaction from the crowd and that's like my least favourite Beatles song. Yeah, I don't, like, I don't love the jaunty ones. But he, I didn't grow up in a household like that. Um, you know, I think I, and I have friends that did grow up with a piano in the house, and they did sing-alongs, and mm. all their favorite ja- uh, Paul songs are those kind of jaunty sing-along, sing around the piano kind of vibe songs, which is, um, I think, how he grew up. Are your family musical? No. So you're the only one. Yeah. Oh wow. So how did that happen then? How did you? Um, discover music or in spite of great discouragement oh really and adversity (laughs) (laughs) what was the first instrument you played uh my friend my best mate down the road sold me his guitar his electric guitar and i i bought a pedal with a headphone um plug and pretended to be studying for year 12 year 11 or 12 what i was in and and would go in my room say i was studying but i'd really just have my headphones on a distortion pedal in my Years and, and just self trying to learn, self taught. Yeah, and this is before YouTube and stuff. So how are you like? How are you teaching yourself? Uh, yeah, or ta- uh, tablature I'd get. So I just I just try and work out a Nirvana song or whatever, and use the tablature, and you know that's just that's just numbers and lines. So it's it's pretty easy to learn. Music is such a like I understand that you can learn it, but I do believe it's like it's there there is an inherent talent to it. Because I remember like when I was a kid, I tried a bunch of different instruments and nothing ever took. And I remember like I, I was getting guitar lessons for like six months, classical guitar, and um, I was advancing nowhere, just couldn't, couldn't play the most basic kind of song. And then my mate, my neighbour, Greg, he borrowed it for like a week and then I went around to see him and like two weeks later he'd learned like fucking 10 songs and then like three weeks after that he bought an electric guitar and then was just playing. And I was like, how did it come so easily mm. to you. And I, I don't know if it was just like a physical thing or he has an ear for music. I mean, it's funny now that I'm a bit older and Iona, you know, is she's sort of interested in music. I bought a ukulele when during COVID because I realised, oh, I actually have an ear for, I can put together like really basic, I understand like um, basic song structure, and, and but it's the actual execution right. of it I find really difficult. Like. And so you're good with the patterns but not the uh, coordination. Yeah, and I think it might be because of my stumpy little <laughs> fingers. Like getting a ukulele was good because it's such a small fret to, to play on. But it's also like um, when I try and play – so I've, uh, there's these great YouTube channels and now it's so easy. There's all these apps and stuff that can teach you how to play. But as soon as I start trying to play and sing at the same time, it's like trying to pat my head oh, and rub yeah. my tummy. That's I still find that hard depending on what I'm playing. Right. Yeah, there's certain things. Like, yeah, as I was saying, bass and vocal I find really hard. I'm, I'm impressed. Is that because one's, one's sort of like rhythmic and the other one's yeah. melodic or I, something? I'm not sure why it is. It might be yeah, the way I play bass as well. But, yeah, I'm perpetually impressed by uh, the Stings and McCartneys of the world and other people that do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> what about the dudes who play bass, sing and dance, like you're in the Jackson 5 or something like that? I mean, yeah, like that's superhuman. Do I you dance? 
Do I dance? Yeah, I don't think I've seen you dance on stage. Uh, on st- uh, not well, dance, certainly not in Children Collide, but even Fascinator. I, I do my I... own version of dancing in Children Collide. <laughs> I, I, you know, it's uh, definitely move a lot in that band. But yeah. I, I think you could, yeah, I think it would be. I think you'd have to call it dancing. Yeah, I dance. I move to the music. I, I, I can't help myself. Yeah, but move, but. I'm definitely not a cool dancer. No, no, I'm I'm talking old school, in, like in co- fact, I've been, coordinated Motown I've, I've, I've type. Copped, I've copped, um, I've copped some pretty bad insults for my dancing <laughs> over the years. Yeah. <laughs> From who? Um, one that springs to mind was uh, <laughs> I was dating this. Girl, <laughs> I was dating this girl in um South Africa who is half Irish and half um black South African, so she has a. This amazing Afro and this thick Irish accent. She's very funny, and I went down to visit her, and she took me into Caliche, uh, which is a, a township, um, you know, just out of t- Cape Town. Mm. And we went to a party, and they were playing. Um, there was a party playing this amazing style of music called. I can't pronounce it because I'm too white, but G Q O M is how you spell it. You have to do a click where the Q is, and when I try and say it, it's embarrassing. So I'm just going to spell it. Uh, anyway, I went to this party. Probably like a couple of thousand people, maybe me and one other white person in the whole place, and everyone kept coming up and calling me Jesus all day. And I'm I'm dancing, and I was like, uh, if uh, people uh, listening, uh, Johnny has long uh, long hair. Yeah. that's why people call him Jesus. Yeah, but anyway, I was dancing, and I was like feeling, you know, very out of place, but feel, still like loving it, having a great time, and also thinking, man, I am ba- I'm a bad dancer compared <laughs> to every single person here, and the style of music is something I've never really tried to get into the – I've never really heard this style before. So it was a new rhythm to me. But I was, anyway, I was, get, I was making friends and had a good time and then thought as we were walking out, I'm like, oh, I think I got away with not being too much of a dork. Mm. And so we're walking out and um, the, the girl I was dating with the Irish accent, she, as we're walking out, she turns to me, she's like, you and your Mr. Bean dancing. <laughs> That's like, that is soul crushing. <laughs> How much of an insult is that? That is the worst. Mr. Bean. I don't think you should be able to criticize people's <laughs> dancing because I think I'm actually quite a good dancer, but I get mocked for it. Like Jem occasionally, Jem thinks that I, I get, uh, um, she, th- she thinks I, uh, my dancing's too feminine. <laughs> She, oh. said, she says I, I put my elbows up too high when I'm dancing. That's like good. I, and like I'm doing some kind of like hip roll or whatever. She says just keep your like. What's keep... wrong with being sexy? I don't know. Well, that's what I thought. Yeah. What's, what's, exactly. <laughs> that's what this episode's called. What's wrong with being <laughs> <Yeah>. sexy? <laughs> but I think like, I mean, I mean, she's half joking. She's teasing. But it's like it, it's a, such a vulnerable moment. And like there are rare times where you feel just such joy and you're in the moment that you want to dance and like you actually, you know, when you're really in it, you sort of lose yourself to then be brought back down to reality by someone saying you looked like Mr. Bean <laughs> or stop being so sexy. I mean, that, sexy. that is, that is that's burnt into my brain Yeah, now, would, that would put me off <laughs> ever dancing. And I think that that's unfair because like dancing, sure, like you're not going to, you're not going to be a professional, but it's just a moving your body to the yeah. music. Like let's not mock people. I mean, I think it'd... I've never danced on – oh, no, there was one show I did, one um, uh, role I had where we had to dance. Like me and my – the scene was like, you know, a group of friends camping and one of them goes, let's put on some music and my wife drags me out of the chair and we start dancing. There's not many scenes on a, like in, in the history of cinema where that's been good. 
Well, there's dancing's good. Any dance, like yeah, dancing in cinemas. Unless it's a, like a musical, you mean? I mean, I, yeah, maybe really? it's a music. Like okay, any anyone, anytime there's a party in a in a film or a TV show, I feel like it's never really. It never looks right. That's a controversial take. I don't think I've ever been taken out of the moment with dancing unless it's been like a deliberate comedic. Like thing. a party where I'm like looking at people dancing at a party. I'm like, yeah, people but, dance like that at a party. But you I know, know what why? Though. You idiots are going to because on set, no one looks like Mr. B. Because on set, you're not actually playing any music because you can't because yeah. you've got to record dialogue. So what generally happens? Just say you've got a party scene, is that the AD or the sound guy will play like five seconds of music so people get understanding of the beat and then they drop the music and the extras have to keep moving but they're not actually dancing to anything Jesus. so the actors can come in and do their dialogue. So yeah, wow. it's much more difficult. I'd, I'd like to you to pay my profession a bit more respect, please. Well, hey, um, your, prof- your, your job is to sell me a story and I'm just saying it's not always being sold to me. Yeah, I look <laughs> – if I had to uh, – if I had to dance like – not like it trained and, and dance, like dancing the stars or something. But if I had to, hey, Charlie, just can you improvise a dance? That would be my greatest nightmare, I think, on camera. Because I think I can do little things, but there's no actual flow or journey or anything like that. I think if I did, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be an improvement from Mr. Bean. I'd be going from Mr. Bean to David Brent. Like it'd be that direction. <laughs> totally. <laughs> and I think that that David Brent scene is probably what everyone's greatest fear is. That's what you're going to look like <laughs> yeah. when you try to dance. <laughs> I had a girlfriend, an ex-girlfriend way back who, um, she wasn't like a professional dancer, but she used to take dance classes and she would always bust out into Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation. Do you remember that yeah. music video? Oh, I don't know the music video. Oh, right, yeah. It's like, it's like this sort of, cla- it was Janet Jackson's sort of breakout, you know, solo um, music video and it's all this I think it was choreographed by Paula Abdul so it's this real kind of like and like that embarrassed me in a different way it didn't embarrass me because it was so bad it embarrassed me so she was, knew the moves she knew the whole routine ah. and she would bust it out even when it wasn't the song Rhythm Nation playing She, if it had a similar beat she would just like start doing this like because it's a very kind of staccato oh, kind of like that was you know, her, it was her move it was her move it was her yeah. go to it's like I had this other friend Leon who I love he has one party trick which is he sings um, uh, that song that Amy Winehouse Valerie you know Valerie oh I got a friend that always sings that too yeah but whenever he sees a microphone like just say you're at some event or something. And to say, like, the piano player's taking a break, he will go up and grab the microphone. I'd say at least five times a year I'll look, check his social media, and he's at some – he's got the crowd oh. rolled up and he's singing Valerie. My brother in Christ, get some new material. Well, he has a good a good voice for Valerie, but I'm right. like, he's got that kind of, you know, that sort of uh, uh, um, uh, – I don't know what the, what the style of music is, like soul or something? Like, yeah. He's got a big, brassy kind of voice. I'm like – just sing something else. Like I know you know all the words to Valerie, but yeah. why don't you sing the what's that commitment song? Mustang Sally. <laughs> oh shit! I I don't want to hear any either of those. Right Ever now. again? <laughs> no, I mean like yeah, it is, it is a thing people do. But I was at um I was at karaoke the other night. And what? My, and my friend, what do you mean? What? You go to karaoke? I love karaoke. Do you? Love it. Holy shit! Um, my friend did Scatman. 
And it was genius. <laughs> and the scat, man, that yeah. one. Yeah, da, da, da. I'm like, it was genius watching someone try to do it. It was a, it was a, it was a good shout, as they say. What's your go-to? Oh, see, I've got to get some funny ones now. I, I do like, I do like ground control to major time oh, and, and and get try and do full Bowie. Yeah, Bowie like uh, Jermaine Clements, yeah. uh, David it, like, Bowie. Um, which of, David Bowie are you? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, I do that. I do. I like doing the police, just oh. just to show off my voice. Which one? <laughs> um, Walking on the moon. Oh, or, yeah. Or Roxanne. Yeah. <laughs> I saw a comedian once make a great joke. Was going giant steps are what you take when you are a giant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my go-to. Um, Footloose. Oh, yeah. I can really rock out a Footloose. It's not too hard to sing. And um, what's the other one I used to do? I can't remember. But Footloose is, yeah, the Footloose is a showstopper because everyone gets into it and you don't have to be that good a singer. I had a friend who used to always just run out of the room with the wireless mic and be singing Red Hot Chili Peppers and he'd just run away and you could still hear him. And it was it was quite a funny trick, like under the bridge, and he's just gone. <laughs> I've always wondered if musicians went to karaoke, and you've answered my question. A lot hate hate it. I think a lot of people hate it. Yeah. No one likes it in Greece. I wanted to do it in Greece, and my my friend was like, "Greeks hate karaoke." I think I think the problem for what people have with karaoke is it tends to be hogged by your Valerie singers. Yeah, like there's people who this is their party trick, and it's their time to shine. I for a we I don't know why, but when I was like eighteen or nineteen, just finished high school, me and my mates we'd play soccer, and then it was just like our tradition that we, after soccer we'd go sing karaoke. Like five like nineteen year old guys would go into the drive into Melbourne and just go to a karaoke lounge and sing karaoke all night. It was so weird. I for some reason I always end Not, up with coked up comedians. Right. So it's like usually quite funny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is there was a the Melbourne Comedy Festival. They used to have a a band that you'd sing karaoke bit with a live band. Oh uh, yeah. And I saw Charlie Pickering do um House of Pain Jump Around and I witnessed like 13-year-old Charlie Pickering living out <laughs> like huh. a lifelong dream. He was up there and I was like, "Well, at least he rapped a song by a, a white rapper." <laughs> I thought it'd be funny to do WAP in an Australian accent, but it turned out to be hard and horrible. Oh, is it what hard to rap? Yeah, there's a lot of Megan Megan the Stallion's bits are really hard, <laughs> and then even just saying "wet ass pussy" is not as funny <laughs> as I thought it would be. <laughs> Will and I have that discussion a lot on on Tofop about in because you haven't um, lived here for a long time, like full time. Hence here. my uh, th- thick Brooklyn accent. Yeah, <laughs> but um, uh, uh, ass in Australia has slowly. <laughs> Been yeah. replaced by ass, like no. people, yeah. People write a double s, and it shits me because yeah. I love ass, but <laughs> uh, it's not quite, sexy. Wet ass. Remember, twenty three Ch- Charlie Clawson. I love ass. That's a quote. Yeah, that's the pull quote. But like wet ass pussy could be interpreted as sexy. Wet ass pussy. It's just sounds like you need to see a doctor. We do have a lot of people think. A lot of people think we have a sexy accent. Really? Yeah. I I had a a really awesome Kiwi girlfriend for a while who had a very funny voice to go with her funny accent, like, Lord Fascinator. And I, we used to joke about making kind of some kind of animated porno and getting her to voice it with her, like, accent because it would be like, just just all of my toots with a book duck. (laughs) 
<laughs> but people do think the Australian accent's sexy. I think it gets, it gets voted as sexy as accent quite often in really? different things. Yeah. Like where? Like in America? In polls, just rent, just various Australian polls. Australian accent is sexy, yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess it's exotic. What accents don't you like? Finns, oh, French really? Canadians, um, people I find from South Adelaide, Af- South African. I find really that's well. We our, our, growing up, that was the bad guy in a lot of movies had that accent. Yeah, diplomatic immunity. <laughs> I feel like that's affected us. Um, yeah, I know. There's just something about it uh, that is true. Actually, maybe I had a horrible South African housemate when I first moved to Sydney, and he may have ruined it for the rest. He of might the get South some Africans. complaints for this. What do you mean? Just for how how hard oh, you're like, going on the South African accent. I like accent. South Africans. It's just the accent <laughs> I find. I like South Africans, but they should shut the fuck up. I can't think if there's any other accent that really – well, when we were in New Zealand last year, it wasn't the accent, but do you notice that New Zealand, they do this thing where they use the word Aussie not as an adjective but as a noun. So they might say, oh, this is my, fr- this is my, this is my friend Johnny. He's from Aussie. Yeah, that is weird. Yeah. Yeah, calm down. Yeah, that's my friend Johnny. He's from Aussie. Yeah, that doesn't make doesn't sense. Doesn't yeah. No, <laughs> I take umbrage of that too. Yeah, it's like, come Shut on. the fuck up. We're not from Aussie. We are Aussie. Yeah, you're an idiot. You're from, I mean, what's the, what would be the equivalent? This is why there'll be no peace between our two nations. <laughs> you refer to us as Aussie. Yeah. I mean, it's like saying you're from Kiwi. You're from Kiwi. Yeah, we're not going to say that. Yeah. We're you're from Safa. Safa. Yeah. Oh, South Africa. Yeah. So is that what that means? Yeah. Safa means South, oh, literally South Af- South African, Safa. Yep, you learn something new every day, Jesus mate. Jesus Christ, I'm 46. <laughs> I've always wondered what that meant. Yeah. Get a Safa. <laughs> Can't park the car park. <laughs> <laughs> you are going to, uh, I want to see the complaints you get from the South African community. Uh, I don't think they, I don't think they listen. I don't, they don't? listen, Johnny. That, no. that, that's okay. Um <laughs> So why are you back in Australia? Why, why, are, you in my, why are you in my studio? Why, why have you darkened? Why am I back in Australia? I have come back to, um, <laughs> to reclaim this to land reclaim in the this, name of Fascinator. In the name of Fascinatology, the one true religion of Australia oh, and beyond. That's what we did last we time. We did, and I've since developed developed that religion. Yeah. Uh, I think that's more interesting than saying why I'm back in Australia now that I've started talking about it. We were talking about this religion I've been writing with ChatGPT. I've been trying to write the doctrines of it. Um, it's gone back and forth. It's an it's called the Church of Fascinatology. It's an autotheistic religion. The self is the God. There's I'm trying to write sixty little a bit like Satanism then. Is it? Yeah. Satanism is the self is God. Well, big religion would say that. I like that you're trying to paint me in with the Satanists. Not that I'm against Satanists, but I would say we're just as valid as any of the five major religions. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> no, 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 that's not, that's not a, a derisive okay. I, I genuinely am um, excited to. But one, one aspect we, uh, we were exploring, me and ChatGPT, was the idea of self-marriage. Oh. And um, I was back and forth with, with ChatGPT and Chat, I didn't, unprompted, well, prompted, but un, I didn't come up with this. ChatGPT said, well, we'll go, it said, um, and after the self-marriage, you have the eternal honeymoon. Yeah, right. Oh, I like that. So I now uh, pronounce you man and husband. No, I now pronounce you. Hmm. I, I now have to pronounce think about you that. man and God. I know. Oh, I like that. And then the eternal honeymoon. The eternal honeymoon. That, that that sounds a bit like 
you're in one of those death cults. <laughs> it's like hail bop comet, like, you know, put on your sneakers, we're get actually, into bed, take this cyanide, we're going on an eternal honeymoon. We're actually a life cult, Charlie. Oh, okay. What is a life cult? Is that a real thing? I just invented it. I like it. No, it's good. <laughs> you're winning me over. I want to join your life cult. Yeah, and go on an eternal honeymoon. Yeah, totally. <laughs> With yourself, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. It's a good message. Others it's are allowed like, to come, but... Yeah. yeah, I like that because the idea is the honeymoon is always the best part and you're saying you never have to give up yeah, it's the all about, joy of loving yourself. There's no um, no better partner in life than someone who has emotional autonomy and that's what we're here to promote. I love that. That's great. Free yourself of self-doubt. Yeah. Always uh, all emotions are valid. Yeah. And it's a, it's a constant positive upswing. Yeah, we also believe that... Uh, Neurodivergent categories of the new horoscopes. Do you have to be a virgin in your religion? <laughs> like to no. marry yourself? No. Uh, no, but you can go fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So, okay, you don't, and is there any, what other, do you have any punishments? Is there any kind of like, no, constant, no hells, no, oh, sin, no, no sins, uh, oh, no. no transgressions? Um, you don't want to hurt anyone else. No, we're pretty we're pretty altruistic, I would say. Um, yeah, we're we're very uh, peace, all about peace, and um, but we embrace uh, technology. We like exploring things inwards and outwards. Um, I haven't got it in front of me. Um, That's I'll, all right. I'll come I don't know. It's, 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 it's a work in progress. But when I have the sixty mini sermons fully properly worded, I can come 60. in. And, yeah, I want to have I want to have sixty little. Um, <sighs> You know, there's the bit on birds being the cousins of angels. See, this is where you're losing me, the fact that I have to attend. You don't have to do shit. What do you mean? You don't have to attend anything. Oh, okay. So the sermons are like you take optional. Whatever you want. Yeah, it's just going to be those like little little life lessons. Little, little. I guess if I am God, is that's what you're teaching me, right? Yeah. Is that I am my own God. Yeah. Uh, so I can create the parameters around worship. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I don't have to be a vengeful God. You don't have to be a vengeful god. Well, I mean, it, it would really be. I'm not going to have to turn Gemma into a pillar of salt or anything like that. Well, that'd be God versus God. Yes. So I don't know. Oh, that sounds we'll... awesome. <laughs> <laughs> god versus God. <laughs> so, who created the universe in Fascinating? We all create our own universe. So, we all it's, exist. It's, it's all very. Um, where it's, a, it's kind of recognizes the subjective nature of reality. Okay. I, I, I accept that. I accept that. And does that mean. Um, you embrace technology. You also embrace science. Like yeah, the, yeah. I mean, the, the thing, the thing that about I think religion is often big, like sort of, I think dumb, like simple dumb answers to big unanswerable questions. I think let's just admit the questions that are unanswerable and and move on. Okay, like what? Like who? How did the universe begin? Well, that's probably eventually answerable through science. Well, they reckon that I'm, I'm, I've mentioned this a lot, so apologies to listeners who get bored of me saying this, but I am attempting to make myself smarter, Johnny, mm -hmm. by reading books written by people a lot smarter than me, and it's really hard because <laughs> I'm, <not, laughs> I'm not understanding a lot of what I'm reading. Okay. Um, but I'm reading, uh, well, I've almost finished this one book, uh, which is called The uh, the God Equation, which is all about quantum theory and quantum computing. Hang on. Does that have three um, names underneath? Uh, well, uh, I've got the e-book. I don't know. The don't... God Equation, that's like three persons, three people's names underneath the title? Uh, no, I don't think so. No, oh, okay. Mich Michio Kako. The... Oh, it's not Hofstede. Okay, right. No, right, no, right. no. Uh, he's a, ja he's uh, a Japanese-American uh, physicist. But anyway, he sort of is talking about, 
you know, so you had the theory of relativity, which is um, in broad terms, like a, like an outward theory. Now we have quantum theory, which is breaking things down to like matter and, you know, what, what constitutes matter. Um, and these two, th- they're trying to unify these two theories because they're kind of almost opposite in a way. But he said with quantum computing, if we do get a point where, you know, we can do, do these enormous calculations, then we very probably will understand the nature of reality and, you know, how the universe came to be and what is the philosophical implications of having no mystery left in the world. Is that something that fascinology, fascin, fascinology? Fascinology. Fascinology, sorry, um, would embrace is like the no mystery? Because you sort of said that, you know, we accept that, you know, there's things that are unknowable. Y- yes. Uh, yeah, I wasn't really meaning on a um – on a scientific level, of oh, course, right. of course, of course, we'd accept that. And when I say we, I mean me, because mm. I'm just writing this as a, a project for myself that others can take or leave. Yeah, yeah. Well, Werner, Werner Herzog, I saw him being interviewed last week, and he said the the greatest mistake we ever did was develop psychoanalysis. Did you have you heard this theory? The idea that. He said, you know, we are unknowable and, you know, why we're, we're ungeneralizable, here. I would say. That, that is more to the point. We're ungen- to generalize the human psyche is impossible because everyone is so unique. So psych- psychology is a science attempts to do that and to, cat- mm. and to put us into categories mm. which are flawed from the, from the moment they're kind of from, from inception because each human's experience of reality is different. Yeah. Well, his, his argument was more the fact that, we have now become so obsessed with looking inward that we have created more issues for ourselves and more problems and more anxieties rather than just existing in the world and being present and in the moment and responding to our environments and communities and things like that. We've all now turned the focus inward and it's like, oh, but how do I improve this and how I improve that? And it's gone, these things are often unfixable. It's funny that- And we're never going to solve the puzzle of why we're here and what the purpose of life is. So we should just get on with living. I agree with that. I like that. But it's also funny that Werner Herzog, who famously repeatedly worked with a total psycho on purpose. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> but is that Klaus Kinski? Klaus Kinski. Didn't, he, didn't he cause him all kinds of trouble? 100%. <laughs> and like the, and the subjects of his documentaries are often these like complex psycho, <laughs> like Grizzly Man, like complex psychological um, uh, case studies. But it's, I think both are true. Like I think a bit of psychoanalysis is – Helpful. Self-awareness definitely is. Well, yeah, but also understanding patterns of behaviour, what may have influenced those patterns of behaviour and then how you can undo those things. But everyone I know, myself included, when they start seeing a therapist or a psychologist, you you get incredibly self-obsessed. You just can't help it because often you are made aware of things that you'd forgotten about or you couldn't remember or you start putting together things um, patterns of behavior that you now have a justification for. And everyone I know who studies like, or who goes into psychotherapy, there's always a period of about two or three months where they can't stop talking about themselves <laughs> or like their childhood or something yeah. that they, but it normally settles down after a while. But I think there's a little bit of that is good. The awareness that you sort of just mentioned then, but then after that, it's almost like you've got to let it all go. Understand that, it's incredibly complex and you just need to be nice to people and not hurt yourself. I think the ultimate goal of it should be empathy, both for yourself and for others. And maybe that, yeah, I mean, I've been through that journey of um, 
I wouldn't say like deep self-analysis, which I guess involves a level of self-obsession at the time, but then coming out of it being like, oh, I can see like where I've been privileged or where I've fucking been a dick to people or how I've affected other people's lives through my, through being, I don't know, I think it should lead to empathy anyway. And like, maybe that's the, maybe that's the ultimate goal for all of us and living in harmony on this earth is just to, uh. Well, do you think we're getting more empathetic or less sympathetic? Or is it just the same? Because I wonder sometimes we're getting less empathetic with this. Let with me the, check my empathometer. Well, it's just I'm thinking more with like, you know, it's sort of social media and the internet and the glut of information that we're fed. Like, you know, they, they say we, we can't possibly care about all these issues that are sort of pumped into I think, our I think eyeballs. you're right. I think it's both. I think back in the day, and let's say 300 years ago, it was very much easier to dehumanise another group of people that were different in the smallest way and justify murdering a bunch of them right now it's way harder mm. and so there is a there's a global there's a the globalization and our awareness of how of humanity across the globe has led to a as being forced to empathize with people in ways we didn't used to have to um and so but we're still selfish creatures mm. so i don't i don't know there's, we probably find different ways to be i just feel like there's a, a desensitization going on in that, you know, like you get so overwhelmed, even like, you know, there's some horrible things happening in the world right now. That That's one case. But even when in between horrible events, it, it, it's almost like, you know, in our, when we lived in tribes, you maybe would have, what, 30 people in your life that you had to be aware of and have relationships with. Now, like virtually we have thousands, you know, yeah. some have some have millions of people and you're meant to be able to interpret that. It's like you can't possibly care about that many people with that many issues at the same time. How could you possibly be empathetic to every single one of those people? Like I, 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 I imagine um, for Jesus <laughs> would have been yeah, yes. <laughs> incredibly, over, incredibly overwhelming. Uh, you know, if, if he you mean felt, for Jesus now? Well, Jesus <laughs> died for all our sins. Okay, and so he had to be like he had. I imagine he had a connection and like an empathy with every human being. I mean, that was his whole thing, right? Like love one another, like you love yourself. And it's like there's got to be some people where Jesus was like, oh, that guy's a bit of a dick. <laughs> you can love everyone, but don't have to love him. I mean, I'm sure the Dalai Lama thinks some people are dicks too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm sure he does. Well, can he? Yeah, of course he does. <laughs> he can feel it, but then he realizes that that's an attachment to an emotion yeah. and that that must be let go like all things because <laughs> it's a life of non-attachment. Yeah. Um, wow, we really got deep. We did get deep. It's a good place to finish up because we started silly and we finished strong. Yeah. Um, but have you got any dates coming up that people need to know about? Uh, I heard when, that Children Collide might be uh, reforming and playing gigs soon. Just, you know, keep an eye out for you get a website or something. Fascinator and we'll put a link. We'll cool. put a we'll put a fascinator link somewhere in this great. episode description. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, great to see you again. Come you back too. anytime. All right, help me use this studio. Pay uh, like pay for this studio. That- all right, I like all your po- tofop pictures on the wall. No, they're coming down. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs>